need a handsome man who could electrify an audience with his vigorous violin playing. It all added to the living legend. No visitor left Vienna without first hearing Strauss's waltzes under the composer's own direction. To miss an event such as this would be like going to Rome and not seeing the Vatican. The Austrians waltzed for a whole century. They waltzed in wealth and in poverty, in good times, in bad, through wars with France and with Italy, with Prussia and with Hungary, internal strifes and civil war. The Austrians whirled to the waltz. This was their escape. On the dance floor, they could, for an evening at least, forget the pressures of the world outside. Before Strauss, his father, also Johann Strauss, to be known as the Elder, and his friend and rival Josef Lanner had been the waltz kings, the stars of the Apollo, or Spurls on Don Myers, and the other great ballrooms, gardens and public places. These two men had laid the foundations for the unique successes of the younger Johann Strauss, as he indeed acknowledged later in his life. The honours that have been my portion today, I owe to my predecessors, my father and Lanner. My own work represents the feeble attempts to enlarge that form that came down to me from them. The fascinating Strauss story begins with the birth of Johann Strauss the Elder in 1804 the son of an alehouse keeper. His rise from the poor quarters of Vienna to the imperial court contrasts strongly with the much easier life of his son. When he announced that his ambition was to become a musician, his stepfather was horrified. Musicians in those days were thought of as a lowly breed, especially the fiddle players who frequented the taverns and inns to play for paltry sums. So at the age of 12, Johann was apprenticed to a bookbinder, after three miserable years, he escaped and joined the orchestra of Michael Power, a conductor whose performances were punctuated by the downing of large quantities of ale between pieces. In this orchestra, Johann met Josef Lanner, two years his senior. They formed their own orchestra, and for a while found life very tough. They shared their lodgings, their food, and their girls, and for a while their only shirt. Whilst one of them went out wearing it, the other had to stay in bed. But by playing their own particular type of waltz, only recently made a respectable dance, and with their undoubted talents, their reputation grew rapidly. The young Richard Wagner on visiting Vienna gives this description. I shall never forget the extraordinary playing of Johann Strauss, who put equal fire into everything he played, and very often made the audience almost frantic with delight. At the start of a new waltz, this demon of the Viennese musical spirit shook like a Pythian priestess on the tripod, and veritable groans of ecstasy, which without doubt were due more to his music than to the drinks in which the audience had indulged, raised their worship for the magic violinist to almost bewildering heights of frenzy. The hysterical crowds at today's pop concerts are evidently no new thing. By this time, Lana and Strauss had gone their separate ways, 
and although the parting had been violent, they still remained friends. Nevertheless, Vienna was divided into two camps, supporters of Lana or of Strauss, in a good-natured rivalry. In 1825, Johann married Anna Rober, and within the space of ten years she had given birth to six children, Johann, the eldest, Josef, born two years later, Anna, Teresa and Eduard, who were the five that survived infancy. They were brought up by an unpredictable and moody father. The marriage was a very shaky one, and it became something of a relief to Anna Strauss when her husband moved out to live with his mistress. But it left the Strauss family without any substantial income. Fortunately, Johann, the eldest of the five children, was a musician. In defiance of her husband's decree that none of his children should follow their father's career, Anna had secretly arranged for Johann to be trained as a violinist. That was something he had always wanted, and he was very much like his father. It was not long before the young Johann approached the authorities. I request a license to make entertainment in public resorts, with an orchestra of from 12 to 15 persons. And soon afterwards, amidst a multitude of rumours, came the awaited announcement of his first concert. An invitation to a soiree dansante, even in unfavourable weather. Johann Strauss, son, will have the honour to conduct his own orchestra at his first appearance anywhere. In addition to overtures and opera melodies, several of his own compositions will be played. This first concert became the talk of Vienna. It was well known that there was no love lost between father and son, and now the younger Strauss had the impertinence to set himself up as a rival, perhaps also to cash in on the fame of his father. It was scandalous and utterly delightful. The result was a sellout. Domer's Casino, the only place to defy Johann Senior in his attempt to stop anywhere harding his son, was packed to the roof. From the very first notes of the first waltz to the dying strains of the last, the audience were entranced and captivated by the brilliance, the dash and the exhilaration of this new Strauss. For the last waltz on the programme, he played his father's most popular piece, and it was encored 19 times. With the music still ringing in his ears, Hans Weist, critic of The Wanderer, stepped from the hot and humid atmosphere of the ballroom into the cold tranquillity of the evening air. As the critic travelled through the dark and empty streets, he happened to look from the carriage window. He saw that he was passing the house of Josef Lana, now dead for a year or so. He took out his notepad and began to write. I looked up at the windows. Everything was dark and quiet as the grave. In that house, there once lived the Viennese who composed quite good waltzes too. Good night, Lana. Good evening, Father Strauss. Good morning, Son Strauss.
In March 1848, four years after Johann Strauss's debut, the long-awaited revolution broke out in Austria. A month before, the government of Louis-Philippe had been toppled in Paris. Then Hungary rose in revolt. Eventually, it was the turn of Vienna to rebel against authority. The object of Viennese hatred was the Habsburg dynasty, particularly Metternich, the autocratic ruler who had imposed a police state on Austria with its own network of spies and with severe censorship in literature and art. Suddenly, no one wanted waltzes, either of Strauss or anyone else. It was military marches that were now needed to steal the nerve and re-inspire courage. Metternich soon fled the country, and Vienna once again felt carefree. But the new revolutionary government became unworkable as endless disputes threatened to split the new regime. In October, fighting broke out once more between the National Guard, supporters of the Emperor Ferdinand, and the revolutionary militants known as the Black Yellows. But what are the Strausses in this period of turmoil? The sun showed his youthful nature and favoured the liberal cause of the rebels. On the barricades in the streets of Vienna that October, he and his orchestra supported the People's Army by playing such pieces as the Revolutionary March and La Marseillaise. The father, on the other hand, was a supporter of the old authority, and this revolution affected him deeply. My father's art was at its peak in 1848. But the artistic temperament was cut short by the storms of those March days. They depressed him deeply. His artistic soul could not thrive in the turmoil of those days. Father Strauss was bewildered and in consequence performed several tactless acts. He named a piece